to start or grow an online business? Should you start a podcast or a YouTube channel? To find out, it's time for a Side Hustle Showdown. What's up, what's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because there are consumers and there are creators, but it's the creators that get paid. As you know, creating content online can be a super effective way to build an audience and ultimately to make money. But if you're starting out or you're trying to grow your business, you might be wondering what type of content makes the most sense to create. In this episode, we're going to compare and contrast two of the most popular content channels going today, those being podcasting versus YouTube. This is actually the first of several friendly debate style episodes this month. I'm calling the Side Hustle Showdown series. And for each, today included, I tried to source guests in a similar niche so they could best speak each other's language. Representing the podcasting side of the debate today is Jonathan Mendonca, co-host of Choose FI, a personal finance show. We last heard from Jonathan in episode 287, where he talked about how his show took off and he was able to quit his job in just 10 months. Choose FI started in 2017, and at the time of this recording, has an estimated monthly audience of around 300,000 listeners. In the YouTube corner, I'm excited to welcome Marco Zlatic to the program. Marco started his channel, Whiteboard Finance, as a side hustle, also in 2017, and has since amassed 370,000 subscribers and became a full-time YouTuber along the way, about a year and a half in. He's called YouTube the best side hustle opportunity right now. Stick around as we walk through marketing, discoverability, content production, monetization, startup costs, and more between the two platforms. This is a fun one. The first voice you hear is going to be Marcos. Ready? Let's do it. Starting YouTube was an incredible opportunity for me and one that I didn't even plan on getting into. I kind of just bought an expensive DSLR and a literally a whiteboard, a huge whiteboard on Craigslist and put it in my living room and started recording. So I think that the way to get discovered early to answer the first round question is you have to think how a, a human would search and also how an algorithm would look at your videos as well. So everyone knows that YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world. It's obviously owned by Google. So it's in that Google environment or atmosphere, if you will. So when you're actually showing up for good results on Google, that'll actually help boost your rankings, whether it's in the Google search results or YouTube search results. Bottom line is when you're creating your videos and your titles, you have to think like a human, how a human would search, but also how the Google and the YouTube algorithms would pick up your content as well. So to boil this down in a quick nutshell, good titles with clear keywords, and they also have to be a little bit enticing for the human aspect. So if you want to do how to tie your shoes as an example of a title, you may want to put in parentheses after that, the best shoe tying technique ever, exclamation point. So it kind of shows, hey, you know, I want to know how to tie my shoes and this title is enticing. So you're checking both boxes. Well, so very much a search engine driven play for you starting out. Do you remember what some of the first videos you created were? Yeah, definitely. It was the ones that I think were most important to myself and my audience at the time. And that was how to establish good credit. So in the United States, a lot of things are based upon your credit score. So it was hitting the niches that people really need to know about or want to know about, and also creating really valuable content around that. So just to give you an example, how to get your credit score to an 800 or something along those lines that really helped boost my search results early on. Okay. I like that dichotomy between how a human would search and how an algorithm would search. So that's, and, and how to appeal to both of those. Jonathan, what about you? What, what drove 
this incredible growth in the early days of Choose FI? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely different than YouTube generally, for better or worse. So podcast from a searchability perspective, especially when I started in 2017, your, your searchability was basically limited to title, author tag, and episode title. That was about it. That's the only thing that's searchable on iTunes. And what Marco just described is still in play. Like your title of your show is the title of your show, but there's really not a lot of gaming there. At least in 2017, you had to do the best you could with, and we used to spam. I mean, if you listen to my episode back in the day, we tried to spam it even more than we do now. So throw some <laughs> keywords in the title, throw some key, like we tried to, we tried to work the system a little bit, but. Which is, which is a big no-no for Apple Podcasts right now. It's a huge no-no at Apple Podcasts. So it's not good practice. You shouldn't do it. But now, basically, what you do is that the, the titles still have some weight. So iTunes, you have your title of your show should be the title of your show. It shouldn't be, let's say you want to do on finance, the finance show for people that like Gary Vaynerchuk, Dave Ramsey, Tim Ferriss, Pat Flynn. You know, it, you can't get away with that anymore or else you'll get, you'll get kicked out. So your author should be your name or the name of your network. The episodes are where you have a lot of room to actually add some searchability in. But I will just be the first to say I, I love YouTube and I love podcasts. Searchability on podcast is probably historically has been the thing that holds it back the most. This is rapidly shifting as Google has increasingly realized the importance of the podcast platform. And as they rolled out Google Podcasts, now what they're doing is they're attaching your your RSS feed, which is like your your feed for your for your show. They're attaching it to your website, which basically gives you a lot of the searchability features of Google. And I think going into the future, whenever someone searches for something that you're targeting that will now be basically attached to the Google search engine as opposed to captured inside of, of iTunes. But the landscape's shifting here and a lot, of, a lot of the things that were huge limitations back in 2017, 2018, starting to slowly move a little bit closer to what you would expect with the YouTube scenario. And that is actually the second point there is like have the home base. I think one thing I did very early on when I started the podcast is realize I'm trying to create an ecosystem as opposed to one platform. So my website was always my landing pad. It was my landing base for the show is the direct recipient of the goodwill that we are generating with the show. Do you have any evidence that Google is quote unquote listening to these episodes and trying to come up with their own AI transcription of what is talked about in there, or are they just going off the title and whatever show notes content you have on your page about it? Yeah, I know right now what happens if you actually type in the name of your podcast. So for instance, if you were to type in choose FI, as long as you've registered with Google Podcast and you've put the correct information into the header of your website that Google Podcast is looking for, you get a very pleasing search result that identifies that you are a podcast, you have a podcast to listen to. So any aspiring podcaster should take the time to find out what Google wants in terms of what you're putting into your website there. That way you're getting both the direction towards your podcast platform as well as your website, which is what you really want. And I don't know how much at this point they're listening to the transcripts to pull things out. What else do you credit with gaining traction in the early days, Jonathan? Yeah, I think when you're when you're starting up with a podcast, you really have to rely on word of mouth. And this is different. So Marco just talked a second ago about search and discovery. That is what YouTube is. You have to recognize that YouTube is search and discovery. For the vast majority of content producers, someone puts a question, how do I tie my shoelaces? And they get a great answer. The person with the best answer, the best titles, the best content rises to the top, right? Podcasts are different. Podcasts are a story-driven platform. It's not search and discovery. You're subscribing to someone's feed. You're wanting to see what the latest thing that they're producing is, and you're along with them on the journey, regardless of what that is. I mean, you could be in the finance space like Marco and myself. You could be just telling stories. Nick, you're in entrepreneurship. There's a million variants, but someone is following you on this journey, and 
that that's huge in terms of once you once we start talking about things like audience retention, et cetera. I mean, it's not uncommon. We usually see about a 90% plus audience retention rate. So someone comes in, they're listening to our podcast on the way to their commute. We're talking for 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. They're hanging out with us for 40 of those, 40 of those minutes, right? I know because I I, I love YouTube and I try to create content on YouTube. It doesn't matter how long the video I make is. It could be 10 minutes. It could be 20 minutes. It could be 30. Like I'm kicking tail if someone hangs out for more than 40% of the time. And that's what the vast majority of YouTubers see. People, you know, it's more of search and discovery. It's mercenary. I want to get the answer. Think about how you might use YouTube, right? You have a question. Let me go onto YouTube and get an answer. So podcasts are story driven and they're with you because you're part of their daily routine, their daily rhythm. Well, Marco, let's talk about that. So if YouTube is primarily search driven, discoverability driven, you know, answers to specific questions, how do you take that viewer and aim for that 90% retention? And more than that, like, how do you build them into like, no, you should follow me, like uh, come into my ecosystem, stick around. There's great stuff in the archives versus yeah, podcast. I, I get it. It comes out week after week after week. YouTube, just by virtue of how people are discovering it might be a little bit different. Yeah. So I think a lot of what Jonathan just said about telling your story and kind of selling yourself that also applies to YouTube as well. The reason for that is think of it kind of like a hook, line, and sinker kind of a scenario. You hook them with providing great content, but you keep them there with your personality. There's definitely, if you picture like a Venn diagram, you have YouTube on one circle, you have podcasting on the other. There's definitely going to be a lot of overlap, I think, in this conversation. I think being video versus audio, your personality can definitely shine just as much through video as it does through audio, if not more so. And to answer the question very succinctly, basically, you hook them with the value. So if someone says, hey, how do I tie my shoes? They see your video, but you also sprinkle in a little bit of Marco's personality, a little bit of Jonathan's personality. They're going to stay because of the personality and also because you provided value by answering their question. Absolutely. And one other thing that I think YouTube has going for it is this viral element. So I was checking your channel, Marco, one of your videos on how car dealerships rip you off. Fantastic title. <laughs> it's like 10 million views, which if any single episode of your podcast has 10 million downloads, that's an incredible reach, but we just don't see that kind of viral growth or viral nature in the world of podcasting. It doesn't happen. So like, is that completely by accident or what triggers are you pulling to try and spin that viral engine a little bit? Yeah. So great question. So I will say first and foremost, that video, although it's valuable, it's probably not my proudest video. It's more of like, so if you think of your content calendar or content pyramid, if you will. So if you think of the food pyramid, you have fats and sweets, you know, on the top because you should eat those most sparingly. That's how I look at my content. So I have evergreen on the bottom. I have trending topics in the middle. And then for every 10 or 20 videos, I'll kind of shoot for the stars and create a how car dealerships rip you off kind of a video. So I think the way I started this podcast was talking about how the title should be for the algorithm and also for a human. And I think the thumbnail and the title absolutely crushed it on that video. And I'm not tooting my own horn. I just look back and say, wow, you know, this is a pretty good thumbnail and title. You know, I don't know if this was on purpose, but if you look at the title of that video, it's called How Car Dealerships Rip You Off, parentheses, The Truth. So if you're a human, you're thinking, okay, I obviously feel like car dealerships rip me off all the time. And I obviously want to know the truth. And in the thumbnail, I have myself pointing to a Foursquare, which is a sales tactic in dealerships, not used so much anymore in 2020, but it used to be. And then on the thumbnail, I have Steelerships with Steeler in red. So all those elements combined creates a very clickable title and a very clickable thumbnail. And basically, that's why I think that virability, to answer the question, 
it comes from telling a good joke. And I don't mean the video is a joke. What I mean by that is the best comedians that you know, so your Chris Rocks, your Dave Chappelle's, you know, you're all the, you know, the Bill Burrs of the world, they crush it every night because the jokes that they tell, a lot of people can relate to it. That's why it's funny. So my point is when you create a video or a topic that a lot of people can relate to, it's kind of like telling a good joke because everyone laughs at it because everyone can kind of relate to it in their own lives. I gotcha. Jonathan, any examples of a particular episode or series of episodes having a really viral growth or really driving that word of mouth engine? You're right. The the virality, I guess, of, of YouTube is one of its greatest strengths, the fact that you can trend in an algorithm and that you can get effectively unearned exposure. The, the YouTube algorithm is doing something for you. Yeah, you worked your tail off. You may have worked thousands and thousands of hours before you got your first video that got that love, but suddenly out of nowhere, Google is trending this thing up and everybody, that's insane. I've never seen that. Having said that, I have had couple big moments. In fact, even yesterday, and this is new, this is changing the landscape. It used to just be, it was just Apple podcast and, and people are always trying to game and get in the new and noteworthy. New and noteworthy is going to do nothing for you if you are a podcaster. Just put that whole, how do I get in the new and noteworthy strategy aside? You can get in there. Maybe you'll get a few extra listens. It's not going to change your life. But having said that, now with these new apps like Overcast and Spotify and a few others that are trying to create an ecosystem themselves that has the listener listening on the platform for longer, they are starting to suggest podcasts in a much more proactive way than Apple ever did. And so I will just say yesterday, we got a 70%, Nick, listen to this, a 70% increase in traffic yesterday. We had 100,000 downloads yesterday. Well, Yes, yes. It broke my mind. That's not, So going from an average, you know, kind of in that 60 to 70,000 range is a, is a great, great day, is a record-breaking day. Suddenly we're breaking 100,000 downloads that's all new traffic. I tracked it down. I was like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, where is this coming from? Overcast. Like, this isn't us doing a paid ad. This isn't us doing anything. Overcast, for whatever reason, in some capacity, suggested us. It must be. I don't, I don't even have the Overcast app. There's no other way to explain that. That's virality. That's something. That's a platform pushing your stuff in the rankings. And so we haven't seen... This is like totally... This is breaking news. We have never seen anything like this. Historically, podcasts, everything's word of mouth. It's your greatest weakness. It's also your greatest strength. Because you have to earn your audience. And then once they have you, they find you. Once they rep you, I mean, we use that. We were getting 7% month over month growth. And every single thing that we produced, every single podcast that we produce gets at least 60,000 to 70, 80,000 downloads an episode, right? I mean, that's, that's great. And it's consistent and it's predictable. But the virality, I've only seen it twice. Once from Spotify, giving us this crazy surge. And once from Overcast, giving us this incredible surge. People think that the, the world of podcasts is just Apple, not anymore. And if that keeps happening, now, now think about it from Spotify's perspective. It wakes, it makes way more sense. I'm going to spend just a second here because I think it's important. Spotify lost money from its origin till now with their expensive licensing deals. And when they broke even and started making money for the first time, it was because they brought podcasts on the platform. And now suddenly, instead of having to pay musicians for every song that was played, suddenly people, even in their premium service, were spending an hour of time on their platform. They were listening to a podcast that was free. And Spotify said, huh, let's rework that. Let's start suggesting if we can get more people off music subscriptions listening to podcasts, we're going to be profitable again. And so now you actually have an incentive for a company to promote you or suggest you. And so all that to say, we'll see where that goes. I'm giving you anecdotal evidence to prove that it exists. We'll see what happens in the future, but it does, it does happen. I mean, you don't just, you don't have 40,000 new people find you and listen to an episode, not your newest episode, but go through your archives in one day because you just had a good word of mouth day. It doesn't work like that. Right. 
That's fascinating. I have not seen that yet, or at least I've not been able to trace that kind of viral growth yet for the for the side hustle show. But that is somewhat exciting. And and your reasoning behind that with Spotify losing money on music licensing makes the hey, we got all these podcasters. We don't have to pay them a dime. This is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and just to just to piggyback off that very quickly, that's a great point, Jonathan. And just going back to my analogy of the overlap of the Venn diagram. If you look at it from YouTube's perspective, they have every incentive in the world to promote videos that make them money because that's pretty much how their whole business model works for the most part is by selling ads. So if you have a very shareable video that brings eyeballs onto the YouTube platform, YouTube has all the incentive in the world to kind of push that out to more and more people, um, piggybacking off what you just said about Spotify and becoming profitable via podcasts. Yeah, it's interesting. It dives into monetization, which I'd love to talk about, but I don't know, Nick, where else you want to go first? When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Well, first I wanted to ask Marco, if you're doing anything specifically on the word of mouth side, like to calls to action in the video to ask somebody to share, to like, to, you know, send these signals to that algorithm to hopefully get you showed up in the sidebar or suggested videos or something like that. Absolutely. And I think the way I look at it is from a sales analogy. So if you've provided all the information, so say you're a, a car salesman, I don't know, maybe it's a good analogy or not, but <laughs> but basically you've answered all the customer's questions, you've taken them on the test drive, you've provided massive amounts of value in the video that you've created, you have every right at that point to ask for their business. And what do I mean by ask for the business? I mean by, hey, consider subscribing if you haven't already. Share this video with one friend who is also interested in topic X. 
things along those lines. You've earned the right to kind of ask like, hey, if you've gotten value from this video, please do it. And I do that typically at the end of all my videos. Have you found that the subscriber metric, at least for a while, this was a big metric in Apple Podcasts, like the rolling seven-day average number of new subscribers or something would dictate where you are in the ranks. Is there something similar for YouTube, like the subscribers being an important metric? I, I don't, I, in good faith, I just, I don't believe so anymore. I think early on it was, but it's become more of a vanity metric to be completely honest. So me, I'm always completely transparent. You know, I, I have 360, 370,000 subscribers, but that doesn't mean that every single video I put out is going to get 360 or 370,000 views. So a lot of these metrics, to answer the core of your question, they're vanity metrics. The ones that really matter are similar to blogging or are potentially even similar to podcasts. And maybe Jonathan, you can answer this, but think of it as, hey, I'm someone that went on Google. I typed in how to tie my shoes. I went on Nick Loper's website and I stayed on his site for like half an hour. It was the best website ever. I watched all his videos. I listened to all his podcasts. I had stayed on his page forever. That's a good signal in Google's eyes, meaning time on page, low bounce rate, things like that. So if you provide value and keep people in the YouTube ecosystem, they're going to reward you with that. So very quickly, just to answer the question, I think subscribers are a vanity metric, but I think certain other signals definitely still apply. Yeah, like when you log into your YouTube analytics, that watch time is the metric they throw up. It's like, it's very clear. This is the uh, one that's most important to them. The longer we keep somebody on YouTube, the more money we're going to make, the more money you're going to make. That's all good. But let's go to round two now, which is round two, the content production side of things. So there are a lot of reasons why I host a podcast and dabble in YouTube rather than the other way around. And the content production piece is is part of that. Like there's a lot of work that goes into making a video that looks good, sounds good, is well edited. We'll get to your production in a, in a second. So Jonathan, can you speak to the what the production looks like for Choose FI? I mean, it's you and Brad behind the mics and and hit record and go. Yeah. I think it's a great point. Production is, is a big piece of this. And how long does it take you to turn out a video? Having, as you said, kind of dabbled with both, there is some very stark compare and contrast here. So in the early days, we did two episodes a week and I was maniacally editing them. And that's an hour piece of content. And like when I was at my most OCD level and most convinced to like turn out the highest quality piece of content possible, my time production on an hour long episode was at the high end, six to eight hours. Now I look back now and that, that's crazy. You could probably do that in three hours for like everything you would need, three hours on an end-to-end episode. So one hour of content, three hours of production gets you a podcast episode at the highest levels of quality. And you could probably even dial that down from there. But I have certainly... You're, you're talking about, I remember like splicing together pieces of words to make it all sound I was ridiculous. <laughs> now you can do it. I'm not saying I don't, I regret it. I don't regret it. You can certainly spend more, but certainly you can get the quality you want with probably three to one ratio is, is roughly right now. I have some of that outsourced now, but still I'm keeping even what I'm outsourcing is included in that time. It's about three hours of work per episode. And I've done work on YouTube. Mark, I'll just give it back to you, but I know we're talking many, many multiples for the quality. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say from a production standpoint, it's very content specific and very channel specific. So Shout out to Andre Jick. He's also a YouTuber whose channel is absolutely blown up. He's also in the financial space, but if you look at his videos versus mine, he is Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, Scorsese, and I am like the sixth grade kid with a camcorder, okay? So my point is, is that our channels are very different in the fact that he has a lot of cinematography, a lot of visuals, a lot of things like that. 
even though we're giving the same information, our delivery is very different. So my point to this ramble is that it all depends on how you want to treat your channel. So if you want to do something crazy cinematography wise, obviously it's going to take more time to edit and it's going to take more effort. Me, I stand in front of a whiteboard and it's almost like a lesson to a classroom. A lot of people call me, they say, oh, I wish you were my teacher in high school. I wish you were my professor in college. You explain stuff better than they do. My format is easy to edit just because of the way I deliver my content. So if you look at it, it's almost like a blog post or a blog article turned into a video. I have an intro, I have a body, I have a conclusion, and that's pretty much it. I don't move away from the whiteboard. You know, Maybe I'll do some stuff in the field, but that's very rare. So my video, video editing process over the years has become very streamlined, and it's allowed me to basically hit record, knock out the video, edit it. I know exactly what I need to do. Same subtitles, same everything, same filters, same settings. And I can knock out a video from literally outlining to pushing it to YouTube live in about, I'd say, three to four hours total. Okay. Wow. And that's how you're able to turn around some of this really timely content. Because it's like, okay, here, let's, let's press the button and let's go. To what extent are you scripting or outlining this stuff out in advance using a teleprompter? Or is it just like, hey, I know I know the material, so I'll just speak to it. That's a great question. So essentially, I'd say the longest part of that three to four to five hour process that I just described is not recording. It's not creating the thumbnail. It's not writing the descriptions. It's creating the outline. And that's doing the very first step in the video creation process. So I don't use a teleprompter, but if you watch my videos and if you watch my eyes, don't look into them too deeply. That's, that's for my wife and my mom. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You can actually see my eyes looking down because I have the computer with the outline underneath the lens of the camera. So it's not a script because at that point you wouldn't be genuine and no one really wants to watch anybody read off a script. It's just to keep me on track to keep the video flowing because I'm sure Jonathan, you know this and Nick, you do as well in the podcasting space. The last thing you want is dead air, meaning like silence, because what are people going to do? They're going to change the channel. They're going to change the radio station. So when I have my outline going, I can deliver a video very fluid and I can deliver it very succinctly. And that keeps people engaged. Yeah. So, I mean, just a point there in terms of your process, because I think it's important for people to recognize you're saying three to four hours is your entire video to video end to end product. And you can have that turned out, but that's predicated. Basically, it sounds like minimal editing. You do the front end on the outline. You just reference the outline points as you go, just shifting your eyes quickly to figure out where you need to be in place. At the end, you have one or two edits signified by a hand clap, I think I saw relatively recently. <laughs> and assuming you get all the cuts out, that thing's basically locked and loaded. Now, the vast, the YouTubers in general, though, like as you start thinking about more and more elements and 20 hours on a 10-minute video is probably, that happens a lot. Oh, yeah. And you're 100% right. So again, going back to my point of literally just keeping the same frame, same everything, you know, I'm in front of the whiteboard, nothing changes. That minimizes the effort needed to create a high quality video by so much because you're not adding in different microphones, different audio, different shots, you know, A roll, B roll, all that stuff. You're kind of just going off the classroom setting. You're a teacher in front of a whiteboard. And that's what allows me to be kind of a one man show and just knock everything out on my own. So yeah, you're correct. How are you figuring out what content to create next? Is like Tuesday is a recording day and we're just going to batch four or five of these videos out in one day? Or curious what that side of the scheduling production looks like? 
Yeah, definitely. So batching is the smart thing to do. However, you have to realize in the times that we're in right now, at the time of this recording, you know, it's early mid 2020 after, you know, everything that's going on in the markets. Now, the most important financial information is very time sensitive. So it just doesn't allow to do that. However, if you go back to my analogy of the food pyramid, of the content pyramid, if you have a lot of evergreen video ideas, so how to tie your shoes, you know, something that's always going to be relevant, you can batch record those. And that makes a lot more sense to do because you're already in that mentality. You're already in the studio. You're already in the video recording mode, if you will. However, when you're doing time sensitive information, you just got to gather all the information and knock out a video and make sure it's valuable. So yes, batching is the smart thing to do. But I think that in the space that I'm in or that we're all in, in terms of finance, I think that time-sensitive subjects need to be uploaded within the day. So if news happens at 10 a.m., that thing better be out by 6, 7 p.m. that evening. Yeah. For stuff that's not time-sensitive, are you doing any keyword research, competitive analysis on like, oh, this seems like, for traditional SEO, this seems like a keyword I ought to be able to rank for? Absolutely. And I think that early on in my channel's lifetime or my channel's life, if you will, keyword research was everything. So part of it was common sense. What would my grandma search for in terms of personal finance? What would my 12-year-old cousin search for? That kind of a thing. But then you also get more sophisticated and start using like keywords everywhere.io, ahrefs, keywords everywhere, that kind of a thing. So I guess that you need to play chess and checkers. You have to think simply to catch the everyday consumer of your content. But then you can also dig a little bit deeper and play chess by figuring out, okay, how many monthly searches does this search term get? What are some other players in my space doing? How do I put my own twist or my own voice on content that's already been created without blatantly plagiarizing or copying someone else? So I think that it's super important to kind of keep your finger on the pulse, but also be original as well. Yeah, a recent guest recommended the TubeBuddy extension, where I guess if you punch in a keyword, it'll give you a score from 1 to 100 on your likelihood of ranking for that keyword, and then you can cross-reference with some of these other search tools to get an estimate on volume and everything. So I thought that was a pretty cool way to go about it. Yeah, TubeBuddy is great. I use it. I've been using it pretty much since I started my channel. Highly recommended. Jonathan, for ChooseFI, is there keyword research that goes into the, the titles of these episodes? Is it timely? Is it audience-driven? Where, how are you coming up with new show ideas? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of all, all of the above, but because of the way the audience is aggregated, it's a little bit less important. The guiding light is just like, what serves our audience the best. And so if you think about this like ecosystem that you've created and this community that you found around an idea, what have you hit? What have you not hit? What is the time to circle back to? Like you, you've kind of given that. You don't need to do, there's no downside to doing all the inform- all the stuff that you just mentioned. It's best practice. We do a little bit of it, but it, we don't have to go into the episode with the plan like that because the show is story driven and people are with you on, the, on a long journey. I, so when I go back to YouTube, those, those are, that's exactly the mentality that I take on YouTube. And it makes sense. Again, going back to this idea of search and discovery, but podcasts, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find your tribe, right? You're 1000 people and you're going with them on a long extended journey and they're inviting their friends along the way. So just kind of deep pressure. There's just so much, there's so many elements like to kind of go back onto this YouTube component. It's all the responsibilities of blogging with keyword research. It's production elements to the 10th degree, the expensive or pseudo expensive DSLR, you also have to figure out the sound. You have to figure out the lighting. You have to figure out the overall funnel that you're trying to create. You then have to figure out not to have a dead fish personality once you get all that figured out and you're in front of the camera. Oh, yeah, I should blink. Or, oh, wow, I blinked way too much, right? 
oh, wow, I wasn't, oh, my audio wasn't recording, but I got my video. Oh, but I guess we need to redo it. Like all these things have to come together. And then when you pair that with the fact with YouTube, there are 31 million YouTube channels in late 2019. 31 million, it's growing 25% a year. It's a massive platform. Great. There's 1 million podcasts, just past 1 million podcasts. It's virtually untouched in comparison. And all you have to do is you need to create content that directly serves your audience, which probably looks like a version of yourself. And there's other people that think like you out there. And you don't really need to start worrying about all this other stuff quite as quickly because it's absolutely right. Without it and YouTube, like how are you going to compete against the other 31 million YouTubers, which are doing some variants of this, right? How are you going to get that algorithm working for you? All right. You guys are doing awesome. Let's move to round three, the monetization round. Jonathan, when we last recorded, Choosefi was not doing sponsorships on air, but was doing affiliate marketing, you know, affiliate calls to action on air and through the website. Is that the same? Has that shifted over time? What's ringing the cash register for, for you guys these days? Yeah. I mean, so all of us have the same opportunities available for monetization, regardless of whether or not you're talking about YouTube, podcasts, blogs. It's it's basically, you have like basically seven options that I've come up with in the past. So affiliates, advertising, physical and digital product sales, masterminds, a book, then the brand opportunities that opens up as your as your audience grows. In the early days, you know, Nick, we actually did a whole conversation about this kind of off offline on a call that we did. It was interesting when you look at the affiliate model generally, when nobody knows who you are and you have no, like nobody's listening at this point, if you have a one or two products that you really, really love and use, right? One or two, even though you're not big, if through the affiliate model, which basically for people, I'm sure everybody listening to your, your show is aware of the difference of affiliates versus advertising, but with affiliate, it's pay per conversion. Someone takes you up on your recommendation and you get a, you get a payment and it's usually a larger payment than you would from like an advertising model. Because with advertising, everybody that sees the ad, you get some smaller amount with an affiliate, you're just getting paid per conversion. And so you can usually outperform on the affiliate model. And in the early days, because we had that, that door was easier to use. The advertising revenue was not particularly significant when your show is uh, relatively early on. We just doubled down and on the affiliate model and our audience took us up on our affiliate recommendations, like just to support us. And we so far outperformed what you could have possibly hoped to make from an advertising model that it was a no brainer. And we loved it so much. We maintained it as long as we could. But I mean, as the platform grew, we probably would have just kept doing basically only affiliate models with some of the others sprinkled throughout. We probably would have not done the advertising. But frankly, like current times, when COVID hit, some of our affiliate income was just decimated. Like the affiliates went away, they shuttered their programs. Like it just, we had to pivot. And so this is kind of new. Our audience knows this as well. We actually just recently rolled out an advertising model and that has actually been great. So, I mean, you're not really, you know, you don't necessarily have to do all of them at the same time. And at various points in the stage of your business, one will make more sense than another. We've done most of them at this point. And yeah, you've got the book, you've got all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So going back to the ecosystem and the brand opportunities, like as uh, I've always thought about us, not as a podcast, but as an ecosystem, like a people that are pursuing financial independence, we aim to be the best resource out there for that. So that has manifested as a book, as a community. There's a free financial literacy curriculum. There's a free course that's available, like all sorts of things to, to make it possible. If you want to find out more about financial independence, this is the spot, right? And this, forget the niche, forget the actual, like that's what you're trying, that's what all of us are trying to do. You're trying to become the resource. You could go out there and do all these Google searches and maybe you'll get good information or you can trust that we're going to find the best information out there, put it together in one place to create a roadmap for you. And just if you binge listen to the archives, if you listen to everything, you're going to come out with a, a master's degree in whatever topic your brand happens to be about. Ours is about financial independence. 
Marco, what about you? I see you've got the uh, Fundrise review pinned to the top of the channel. So I imagine there's some affiliate stuff going on. What else is working for Whiteboard Finance? Yeah, so a lot of overlap with what Jonathan just said. But I think that the the main differentiating factor is that the ad revenue, the way that YouTube is just monetized, simply monetized. So for the audience that may not understand, obviously, when they watch a YouTube video, there's going to be an ad that plays unless they pay for YouTube Red or whatever to get rid of those ads. But ultimately, the creator gets 55% or so Google says, I don't know what it really is, but (laughs) the numbers are 55% of whatever that ad is, the creator gets that Google takes 45%. So ad revenue is one of the most passive ways to generate income off of YouTube, although you have to keep creating content to be able to earn that income. So it's almost like a catch-22 or a double-edged sword, because I think when you're uploading consistently, YouTube will recommend your videos more, thus enhancing the amount of ad revenue that you receive. However, you know, you can also do in a very ethical and a very unbiased way, you can do affiliate marketing by providing reviews for certain products. So I do that with Fundrise, I do it with M1 Finance, I do it with a bunch of different platforms where people can actually start to invest in. And I do it in a way where, A, I actually have my own money in those products, I have my own skin in the game, and I do it in a way where I talk about the pros and the cons. I'm not just one of these people that says, oh, you got to sign up for this because it's the best thing since sliced bread, right? That's going to hurt your credibility long term, and your credibility takes a lifetime to build. So to answer the question, I would say ad revenue is number one for most YouTube creators. Affiliate marketing is most likely number two for most. And then don't forget about digital courses. So to Jonathan's point about getting your master's degree in whatever your channel or your podcast is about, I think that if you curate all the information that you talk about and you present it in an easily digestible curriculum, aka a digital course, those can be very lucrative for a lot of different people depending on the type of niche that they're in. And there's a million more ways to monetize a YouTube channel and a podcast But I think the top three are ad revenue, to Jonathan's point, advertisements. The second is affiliate income. And then the third would probably be digital courses. And Nick, let's spend another minute on advertising. Because I think aspiring podcasters and YouTubers will actually benefit just generally from what we're seeing out there. When you're talking about advertising, specifically, a lot of people think they're going to go into podcasting to YouTube and they're going to make money doing, doing ads. And you need to realize like the kind of the rules of the game, there's kind of bars before you're really going to be able to monetize at a significant level through advertising on both platforms. So on podcast, in terms of you working with an agent and getting someone, getting a consistent number of brands to want to advertise with your platform, you probably need to be approaching, and this is not a hard law, but this is just what I I usually notice, around 5,000 downloads an episode. So 5,000 downloads an episode really starts to make you look more attractive towards larger brands that are looking to advertise. And as you go up higher towards 10,000 downloads an episode or beyond, it becomes much more likely. YouTube has its own bar. Like you can't monetize on YouTube until you get, Marco, is it 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 watch hours? Is that is that accurate? Well, you know what, Jonathan? When you have 364,000 subscribers, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing around. So they did change it a couple of times, but yes, it's typically, from what I remember, it is 1,000 subscribers and about 4,000 hours of watch time. And that sounds intimidating, but all it takes, to use uh, your phrase, Jonathan, whether it's earned or not, the unearned virality, you can do that in literally one video if one of yours pops off. So it sounds like a difficult metric to achieve, but it can happen if you do have that one video that really does pop off. It could happen, absolutely. But once you get there on the other side, now let's talk about CPM. I happen to think that business has one of the highest CPMs on YouTube, and it's around 
$10 a CPM. And I believe CPM stands for cost per milli, but basically it says every thousand downloads you get, then you can make, you'd make effectively $10. That's what you come home with. And depending on your niche, it could be far less than that. And in fact, during COVID right now, and this is the other thing, YouTube has actually cut their CPMs dramatically. So that has actually gone down. So if you have a thousand people watch your video, because now you're, so first of all, you make 15 videos, finally one lands, you get that thousand subscribers. Now you're eligible. You make the next one, you get 2000 views. So that's 20 bucks, right? So there's a long-term game here. I mean, Marco, I see yours. You have one that's gotten 320,000 views, maybe one that has a million views. So like you can see how like if you're in that business niche and you're getting a $10 CPM, that can add up quickly. But would you agree that like YouTube can move the needle dramatically on what that, like there's a lot of variance on what that CPM can actually be. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people don't talk about this. So the people that are really making money on ad revenue, you have to think of it logically. So I, I agree with you 100%, Jonathan. You have to think of it logically from an advertiser standpoint. Okay, do you think the content creator who's eating a 47-pound cheeseburger and skiing downhill and chugging a two-liter Mountain Dew, there's channels like that. Those people have very low CPMs because- $3 CPM would not be unheard of for many of these niches, yeah. Exactly. So what are you, like these prank channels, very, very low CPMs because who are you selling to? What is your demographic? No one really knows. If you're focusing on financial topics or business topics or even like drop shipping, for example- the most lucrative niche period is how to make money online. And it, there's a reason why it's the most lucrative is because people are willing to pay money to advertise on those channels to sell their product, which is a high ticket item. So those CPMs are going to be much higher. So naturally around $10. Is that accurate? I'd say even higher for that specific one, but I'd say for finance to the creator, I'm not saying, I'm not saying period, but I'm saying to the creator, I'd say 10 to 15 bucks to the creator is what I'm seeing, not just personally, but I just know just because I'm in the space and I talk to a lot of these creators. Yeah. I mean, if you were to compare and contrast that on the podcast side, that same CPM, the the market, and there's some variety there too, but I mean, market's probably to the creator, probably $21 all the way up on the very, very high end $35 to the creator, depending on the brand. So that's a, that's a huge, huge difference on that end as well. Yep. Agreed completely. But you also have to realize just to, to kind of turn this more back into the debate. And I agree with you for sure. But all I'm saying is that the reach that the YouTube videos have of that virality can also be the X factor to kind of say, hey, I know I'm only making, and I don't want to say only, it's still a decent income, but 10 to 15 to the creator times millions of views because my video just went viral. You can't really get those kinds of numbers in terms of podcast numbers from the number of views. Marco, how long did it take before the YouTube ad revenue or affiliate revenue from the channel was enough to the point where you're like, all right, I'm going all in, I'm going to quit my job and become a full-time YouTuber? So I quit my job. I was working at a publicly traded bank here in Cleveland, solid finance career. I quit. I put in my two weeks in the middle of June, 2019. And my last day was July 1st, 2019. So I started my channel in November of 17. So it was about a year and a half. And the income was decent. It was a nice little side hustle. It was fun. You know, I like teaching. So it was, it was very rewarding, but kind of the quote unquote, it's not really life changing money, but it's money enough to where I can dedicate my full effort to it. That was after about a year and a half. Cool. And then Jonathan, we talked about 10 months to the Freedom Unlimited money on the last show there. So Yeah. And I think the big thing there is like, you know, I think it's replicable. People can do that. But like, that's not with both these platforms, 
the vast majority of podcasters would say, don't do this for the money, right? I certainly <laughs> think you should think about it as a well, business. For, for me, it was way longer than 10 months. Like, yeah. I don't want, I'm not trying to sell you get rich quick. I think what Mark and I are both trying to do is share from like our experience, what happened and then how, what our mentality was going into it. The, these are the rules. This is the framework. Your mileage may and will vary, but this is lo- what we did. Yeah, I think we are definitely, I don't want to say exceptions to the rule because we're both putting out good quality. Same with Nick as well. I think Nick just picked up his Ferrari. Uh, he's getting it after this podcast <laughs> is over. But <laughs> no, all, all joking aside, yeah. So we're definitely not selling the get rich quick kind of thing, but your my, your mileage definitely will vary. But it's it's definitely possible, but I would say that I'm probably the exception to the rule. But you also have to realize if you're putting out valuable content, you can also very easily become the exception to the rule. It just depends on how good your content is and a little bit of luck. I will say that. I agree with you. Why not me? I remember saying that question. I said, oh, I could, let me try. Why not try this? Like, what's the downside? And I think one thing we should, we should just talk about, Nick, and maybe you were going to go there is like cost of startup. Is that on this? It should be. Go ahead. Let's do it. (laughs) Marco, this is one of, I mean, I, I'm doing YouTube. So my humble, you know, roughly 20,000 subscribers on YouTube pales in comparison to Europe, but I'm, but I'm putting the work in, right? I haven't caught in the viral wave. I'm loving the production. I'm enjoying it. I haven't caught the viral wave, but because I've leaned into it, I have some pretty interesting kind of compare and contrast data on the cost of a world-class podcast, which I started in 2017. And I was like really trying to get the bar high to like, all right, what does it look like to be at a high production value on YouTube? And having done the research on both, the cost to start the world's highest quality podcast, at which there's a point in which there's no noticeable difference to anybody and it's doesn't cost a whole lot compared to having the world's highest quality YouTube channel. I mean, that there's an insane difference there between just getting started and getting something on YouTube versus high-end YouTube stuff. And I'm astonished at the fact that you can spend more on lighting on a camera. The sound game entirely changes all the consideration. Like it was just a completely different world. And I guess you could just get your iPhone in front of you and take a video and push it up to YouTube. But with 31 million YouTube channels, you got a lot of steep competition. Yeah, I would agree with that. The thing is, going back to my original point of just depends on what kind of content you're putting out, I absolutely agree with you. But I can say that I have a Sony Alpha 6400. I got the little kit. Maybe it was like a thousand bucks, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more tripod and lighting. I mean, you're really all into a, a potential studio for less than two grand. So I think. Either way, and I'm sure a world-class quality podcast, to your point, can be started for just as much, if not less. But I think what people have to realize in general is that's ridiculously low overhead to start a potential six-figure income business. So we're not out here renting real estate. We're not out here building out a storefront. We're not out here you know, with physical, tangible goods that may expire or go bad or get returned or damaged. I mean, we're literally just recording our brains into audio or video and sharing it with people for a ridiculously low startup cost. So the ROI, if I had to give you a number, it would be probably in the, I don't know, tens of hundreds of thousands of percent, you know, based on what my startup costs were. So I think in the grand scheme of things, either way, YouTube or podcast is going to be a good way to go for someone with not too much startup capital and who wants to start a business. Yeah. So the a YouTube channel budget for someone that is wanting to kind of get started, have a high, you know, a relatively high end look that there's a camera. So a 60, a 6400 is a great, relatively high end budget camera. That That's a great value there. And then you're going to take care of lighting. You mentioned some sort of lighting kit. So you could get like a ring light or something like that, putting you maybe another hundred dollars and you got to figure out your audio because you can't use the audio that was coming into your, into your a 6400. That's not going to sound good. 
when it's scaled out. So you're looking at getting a microphone of some sort. Maybe you get a shotgun mic and you got another $200, $300 invested there. So now you have all that, but you do need to still edit the show. So you need to have your editing software. Maybe you use like Final Cut Pro, which you pay $200 for as a once-off on your Mac, or you get Adobe Premiere and get a subscription for that. And you get the, you know, the editing software, which if you get the package is around 80 bucks a month-ish, or you could get just Premiere for 20 bucks a month. And then on top of that, now you're, okay, now you're getting started, but now you also need a video editing computer. You're like, oh, okay, well, maybe I can use just my <laughs> Chromebook. Oh, or, or no, no, that's not how it works. You need to get a video. Now you start looking at video cards and RAMs like, oh, okay, well, let me get a $2,000 computer so that I can have something that can churn through this. And now, okay, now you're in the game. I think that's kind of like, all that is fine. I think I agree with you. The ROI is there and you can do all that. You can literally, a podcast, you can make a $100 investment in a microphone. You can use free software and you get a pretty good sound compared to what some people are doing. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. But I think that a fair estimate is two, three grand. And there you go. You have a potential six-figure business. But again, after the course of many videos, many hours, many splicing words together, you know, that kind of a thing. So I think the sweat equity is really the biggest expense in either endeavor. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, the Side Hustle Show started for less than a hundred bucks and it's been a completely life-changing thing. It took longer than 10 months. It took longer than a year and a half. But yeah, if you measure that ROI, right? Thousands and thousands of percent, if you don't count that, <laughs> that sweat equity at the beginning. For sure. One thing that is common amongst both platforms is that once you have the audience, you have options. You can do the affiliate thing. You can do the advertising thing. You can sell your own products, your own services. Marco, one thing I'm curious about is at least at the time of this recording, whiteboardfinance.com is like a coming soon page or like a under construction page. So for me, the email list, the home base, the website, like those are all really important components of the brand. So I'm curious what's going on over there. Yeah. And that's a great question. So to get to the crux of what I think you're saying or what you're asking is that the people listening to this podcast episode need to realize if they do want to pursue YouTube as a quote unquote business or a platform that they want to pursue, you have to realize that you're on rented land. And what do I mean by that? Google or YouTube can shut your channel down tomorrow without pretty much any recourse from your end and say, okay, thanks for playing. Have a nice day. And that's happened to channels with hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So to answer your question, I'm in the process of building out whiteboard finance because I want to migrate my viewers to my landing page, if you will, similar to how Jonathan and yourself have your own websites. I want to start to get people onto my own email list, which I already have. It's in the thousands of people um, and it's still growing every day. But my point is, is that the more things that you own off of YouTube, the better insurance policy you have in terms of things going south if your channel does indeed go through a, I don't know, a purging or a censorship or whatever, because that is a reality on YouTube. So to answer your question, yeah, all those things are being created because I think it's very important for you to kind of quote unquote, own your own audience and own your own real estate. Does that make you nervous? This could happen at any moment. I'm living on rented land, to use your analogy. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. It does and it doesn't because my channel is not politically charged. My channel isn't doesn't talk about any sensitive subjects. It's simply just talking about helping people with finance, entrepreneurship, and investing. However, that's not to say maybe I crack some joke or something and guess what? My channel gets a strike or whatever. My point is, is that at this point, it doesn't make me nervous, but I'm definitely cognizant about it. I mean, I think you're, you're nailing it. I think you're, you need to be aware of it. You never want to forget that you're building, if you're a YouTuber, if you're considering yourself a YouTuber, then, then that means you're building a brand on YouTube's platform. But 
at the same point, know your risk, Marco, your risk in your space, the way you create your content, high quality, clean content, your risk is relatively low. Having said that, that decision is outside of your control. And you just, as long, if you forget it long enough because, oh, it's, it's working, then, you know, you don't get warning on these things. You just wake up one day, you go to log in and you're just, that's been turned off. So exactly. you're making the right call just regardless. Like anybody that's doing either of these platforms, the great thing with podcasting is you don't really have a choice. You have to build your ecosystem. Like every podcaster just for a while now has known, all right, I'm gonna start a podcast and I'm gonna build a website. YouTubers early on forgot that. And some of them had a lot of pain when that right reality check happened. So starting fat sooner is just best practices really with any brand. Whiteboard Finance is a premier personal finance brand. It produces the highest end content for a community, regardless of whether or not you find it. It depends on how you want to get your content. If you want to get articles, if you want to get video, if you want to get audio, you you choose what works for you. But whiteboardfinance.com is your is your home base. That's where you that's the story you want to have going forward. Exactly. Completely agreed. All right. Well, hopefully that gets built up a little bit before this airs. So we could say, at least as a hedge, as a little bit of a safety net for you, a YouTube insurance policy should something go wrong always makes me a little bit nervous to be playing in somebody else's sandbox. But it's a trade-off for the audience exposure, the viralness of it. Lots of cool stuff. Any parting shots before we, what's it called at the end of the debate? You know, closing arguments. I'll go first just very quickly because I think that although it is a debate, I do think that there is a lot of overlap, as I mentioned. I agree with a lot of what Jonathan has said. I think that with YouTube, you have the potential to see gratification more quickly as opposed to building up that word of mouth, which is the double-edged sword, as Jonathan said. It's kind of like your best and your worst aspect of podcasting. I think you have the chance to get fame very quickly. However, it's up to you as the creator to keep providing value to maintain that fame or maintain those views or maintain those likes. So I think both platforms, relatively low startup cost, both platforms can be life-changing. We're both obviously evidence of that, or all three of us are evidence of that. But I think that to really maintain that audience, you have to provide value at all times. No video should be less than an 8 out of a 10, in my opinion. But then done is always better than perfect. So you're always walking that fine line. But I will say from YouTube standpoint, it's almost kind of like a what have you done for me lately? Or you're only as good as your last game if you're making the quarterback analogy. You know, you definitely need to produce. It's almost like a commission sales role. You know, hey, you had a great month last night. What videos did you come out with this month? Kind of a thing. Yeah. And Marco, I, until relatively recently, I hadn't seen your channel. I mean, you're just doing it right, man. I mean, you did it with relatively low startup. You build a great organic audience. In terms of best practices, I love what I'm seeing on your channel. And like, I have a lot to learn from what you're doing. I think to our audience, go check out his channel. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot there. But <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. But just keep a few of these things in mind. Like the startup costs, like I do think two to $3,000 is probably what you're going to be spending on a YouTube channel, which is totally fine. And as Marco said, ROI is there for sure. Podcast, if you're trying to do this on a budget, like you could start with a hundred bucks. Now I've spent far more than that on the podcast over the years as I keep trying to do 1% improvements and get better. But don't let anybody tell you, like you can, hundred bucks, you can have your podcast, get it started and then kind of build off of that depending on what your budget is. And then the other thing is kind of the hybrid, the bridging the gap here. I didn't wait till I was comfortable doing YouTube videos to start my YouTube channel. Now with uh, some providers, I'm going to include Libsyn in there because I use Libsyn personally. I'm sure Nick will have a link in the show notes. You can, they have a feature called on publishing where you can push your podcast out to all of your 
to all of the platforms that you want. And you can make YouTube one of those. So when I first started, I just created a special thumbnail, static image for YouTube. And I pushed my podcast to YouTube. And now YouTubers would hate me for this, but it works. And you'll actually, I was able to cultivate a pretty loyal diehard audience on YouTube of around eight to 10,000 subscribers with an average audience retention of around 40%. But on an hour long podcast, Marco, would a YouTuber cut off his arm for a 30 minute average watch time? So you don't necessarily have to wait for both. And you can kind of like, until like, if you want to ease your way in, start polishing your craft. Wouldn't it be nice if when you started your YouTube, you were already confident talking into a microphone, just one less thing to figure out. So I had to go back, man, I look like a dead fish when I was standing in front of the camera the first time I had the audio down, but I couldn't get any energy behind my eyes. It took me a while. It's just a different game. And so you can ease your way in, get comfortable with the microphone, that sort of thing. But anyways, all that being said for Nick's audience here, I have put together a special checklist of kind of like my mic selections and equipment selections, software selections at various budget levels. And if you're interested, I'm creating that landing page for you. Go to choosefi.com slash side hustle nation, choosefi.com slash side hustle nation. Very good. Thank you for that. Choosefi.com slash side hustle nation for Jonathan's gear checklist. Check Marco out at Whiteboard Finance on YouTube and hopefully coming soon, whiteboardfinance.com. Thank you guys both so much for joining me. I really love this conversation and uh, the debate back and forth as YouTube is a new frontier for me and we'll catch up with you soon. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show where we've got another showdown episode featuring a couple fan favorites with two distinct takes on making money in the e-commerce or physical product space. I'll see you then. Hustle on.